0: For some people, deciding to pursue an adventure, it's about doing something that hasn't been done before. But for others, it's about shaking things up from their day-to-day routines. Sometimes adventures are more about the process of getting there than accomplishing the feat itself. These days, it's easy to find yourself living a life of busyness or just complacency. So today, I'm talking to three people of varied ages and backgrounds Who all decided to shake themselves out of their own life by pushing themselves to complete an extreme adventure. I'm Shelby Stanger and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Have you ever had the desire to leave your whole life behind, even if just for a week or maybe a few months, to forget about the emails, the traffic, the obligations, and just think about survival? Today, I'm talking to three people who did just that. At age 57, Jerry Hall rode his bicycle from Alaska to Mexico. It took him 51 days and 3,364 miles. After finishing graduate school, Julie Hotz hiked the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada. Ryan Higginbotham and his twin brother, Casey, they decided to also go along the Pacific Northwest, but they decided to hold their adventure in the Pacific Ocean, starting in Alaska and ending in Mexico, but on paddle boards for over seven months. Each of these people put their lives on hold to complete a journey that would have a huge impact on who they are as a person. I talked to them about the decisions that led them to go on these adventures, some of the unexpected moments that happened within these grand journeys, and the lessons they learned that are influencing the lives they lead today. First up, Jerry Hall. Jerry was over 30 years into a traditional career in corporate sales. He was unsettled by the way that every day just felt the same. So he decided to do something unexpected. He resigned from his job and he set out to Alaska where he got on a bike he didn't even know what to fix and he just started pedaling. You can read all about his journey and why he was looking for an opportunity to grow and change in his book, Downhills Don't Come Free. My partner Johnny read it cover to cover and he loved it. So you set out to bike from Alaska to Mexico. Why Why that route? And why biking?
1: Well, because I, when I resigned, I said, what am I going to do? I wanted something big. I wanted, to, I wanted to know what I was made of. I've read every adventure book. I've read about the pickles that women and men get themselves into. And I wanted to say, what would I do? So when I resigned, I said, okay, what am I going to do? So within just a few short days, I said, well, I'm going to bike. And I think I'll go from... Seattle to San Diego. And then I ran into a guy and he looked at me, he goes, Cherry, if you go, go big. And I go, I'm thinking too small. Oh my God, on the spot, in a snap. I said, I'm going to Alaska to Mexico. That's the amount of thinking that went into it. And that's about the amount of planning that went into it. And I just said, I'm just going to go. I bought the bike, got on a plane. And the first time I was ever on a loaded bike, first time I was ever clipped in, was pedaling on Anchorage. I never loaded it in Minneapolis. I never ridden in clips. I didn't have bike clothes. I'd never done any of this. And I just said, I'm just going to figure it out along the way.
0: I don't know if I'd recommend trying
1: that at home. (laughs) No, I'm not saying it's the brightest thing in the world, but what it is, is it's doable.
0: Yeah, it is doable. So Johnny said there's a lot of accounts right away where you just saw grizzly bears.
1: Yep, totally in the far north. I was yelling at grizzly bears and bears every day. I had, I had 20 bear encounters, all of them within 30 to 100 feet. Well, what does yelling and at them I do? I mean, they, they really- Four grizzlies, 16 black, a mama grizzly with her two cubs. And, and you're, you're 50 feet away and you go, I'm already too close. I am screwed. And, um, you know, just serendipity and the luck of the wind got me through that. So
0: on the way, you know, you hadn't done much camping and it sounds like you freedom camped along the way. How did you figure that out?
1: Shelby, here's the way I looked at it. I just took an inventory of my skills. And it's kind of like they're called transferable skills. What, what do I have? And I said to myself, here's my thinking. I didn't overthink it. I didn't overplan I said, I know how to camp. I know how to pedal. And I know how to work out. Even though I wasn't biking, I was always in good shape. So if I can do those three, what's the big deal? I'll just string a few of those days together and I got a trip. That's the way I looked at you it. You
0: didn't have self-doubt or fear. You just kind of had either blind ignorance or you're just confident.
1: Well, it is, there is a blind ignorance. I mean, it, it is, which, which works to your advantage because things can happen out there, but I didn't let them stop me. What you realize and what you learn is that most boogeymen are imagination gone wild. And of course, bad things could happen. But I just thought it was going to be the risk. We're going to be overwhelmed by the good. And I just had confidence that I could do it. And then there's a little bit of luck in the casting your fate to the wind when you do these journeys and you go with it. Yeah. But you, you trust yourself. You trust your judgment. And what happens is that people confuse discomfort with danger. So people think this trip was a hell of a lot more dangerous than I ever thought it was. Basically, people stop themselves because they let those boogeyman loom larger than they really are. So what I would do when I'd come into a situation is I'd give it what I called a big deal, little deal test. And I'd say, okay, here's the test. If I can get killed or maimed in this moment, in this situation, that's a big deal. Everything else is a little deal. Mm. Everything.
0: So bears were one thing you didn't expect. What else happened that you just didn't expect on the tour? I
1: didn't expect I was going up a hill late in the day on the Alaskan Highway. It was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, 85 miles into the ride. I'm in the wrong gear. I'm straining up a hill. My thighs are too heavy in the pedals. And I reach down to downshift, and the chain comes across the sprocket, and my whole sprocket, my whole chain explodes. And it unravels, and... I hear it kind of grind the unravel and then it plops to the ground and I'm pedaling air. My bike to a stop, I lay it down, I go down and I pick up this chain, it's like a dead snake. I didn't have a clue what to do and how to fix my bike. It was late in the day, the wind is swirling high in the pines and I glance in the distance, I see a yellow dot and all of a sudden this yellow dot's moving and oh my God, it's another cyclist and up rides a woman from my hometown
0: no but not, way. i
1: mean my hometown in minneapolis and she says well jerry you know if she calmly worked the problem i'm a little rattled i'm about ready to pitch my tent lay down suck my thumb and i'll worry about it in the morning she says there's a way to fix this do you have a manual i shake my head no i said no i don't have a manual she says i got a manual she digs deep in her pack by the way she had the exact same bike i did pulls out the manual flips it to the chain section she says uh, do you have a snap link? You can reattach a chain with a snap link. I said, I don't know. When I bought the bike at REI, I told the REI guy, hey, if you were going on a trip like this, what parts would you bring? And I said, just throw them in a bag. So he walked the parts rack and played it like a piano, put it in a bag. I never looked in the bag, wrapped it up, jammed it deep in my pack. So I un- I unload that pack on the pavement and the woman named Sarah is standing there, and all of a sudden, huh, the guy from REI put in a snap link. So she and I are hands and legs, restringing the chain, getting it all positioned, and click, it goes back in place. I'm back in business. She was an absolute godsend. And what I learned is that you didn't change in growth, doesn't occur in safe harbors and calm waters. It changes, change in growth occurs in the flame out zones. Put yourself in a position to hit them and then rely on your instinct skills and then some luck and you'll find out you're so much more capable than you ever thought. And that's when your perspectives expand and your capabilities grow and new opportunities arise.
0: So what were the key takeaways from this journey? I mean, there's so many moments, I'm sure. I mean, they're incredible, like just everything you went through without a lot of experience sounds pretty wild. I mean, that's a wild idea.
1: Definitely. The key takeaways are that you can do so much more than you give yourself credit for. And everybody's got these innate skills that are laying dormant, in my opinion, and a big stretch awakens them. And you won't ever draw on them or use them unless you go do that. And then what I what I also learned in that is I, I learned that Through my life, all the small stretches I'd done, weekend warrior type stuff, all those culmination of those small stretches, you just pile them on top of each other and you make a big stretch out of it. And small stretches shape your future. And then the big stretch makes your future. Because the key takeaway is I had no idea how I'd change or grow or what would occur after this. I thought it was like personal R&D this whole trip, personal research and development. I didn't know how I change and grow. I just knew I would, and what you find is that you can do so much more. And the perspectives of what you learn and how you can do them better and faster than you ever gave yourself credit for—that's probably the biggest thing.
0: So, how did you change personally? Like when you came back, what was different?
1: Well, here's here's what you find out is that people went out of their way to help me whenever they just saw my exposure and vulnerability. And they would go out of their way to help you. A car would pull in and do a health check on you. They'd top off your water bottles. The guys, hey, I saw you climbing that mountain. I want you to have this candy bar. Mm -hmm. And then what I realized is how people were reading a blog that I was writing along the way. I didn't realize the change was having on them, but inspired them to do things. So what what it made me think, you said, how did I change and grow? What it made me think is the way people went out of their way to push me forward, I'll go out of my way now to encourage and push someone else forward. So you That's became nicer. New. Yeah, you become, you You totally do. You totally do. And you say, oh my God, I know my vulnerabilities. I want to help them in any way I can. And now what I want to do is inspire people to dig in and pull out their best.
0: How was your family in terms of, how did they support you in this journey and, and how did they react to it?
1: My wife, When I, in pillow talk, when I told her what I was thinking just before resigning, so we got pillow talk and I said to her, you you know, here's how I'm feeling. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm stale. I need explosive growth. I need a new, and I don't want little baby steps and try and test and see how I do. She turns her head in the pillow and looks at me and goes, what are you waiting for? Go. It's your turn. She says, look, we, we bought a house. We've raised three kids. We've educated those kids. You let me back away from my career so I could spend most of my time with those kids. Go. It's your turn. And then I laid back in my pillow and I said, Oh, God, talk about supportive. What a gift. Then I said, I Man, actually, that was pretty easy. And then I thought a little more. She goes, In fact, she was even a little enthusiastic about it. She's like, Get out of the house, Jerry. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But I mean, the kids. Because I, I had never done anything big like that, but they weren't shocked by it. Just from an attitude standpoint, they didn't love the idea of it, but they knew that it wasn't going to change anything. They just had confidence I could do it, and so did I. This trip was very physical, but it's more mental than mm-hmm. physical. And it's all about attitude. And what you learn, and another one of the what do you take away, is that the biggest thing I had along the way was an attitude of little things discomfort versus danger. Very few things are dangerous. A lot of it's uncomfortable.
0: Why is it so important to get outside, you know, instead of reading about it or watching a movie about it?
1: You you can't possibly know what your capabilities are unless you put yourself out there and and try things. And then that's not just a, an adventure. It's not just physical. But to sing in the church or... Write your book or do something that you feel really exposed with, and then just enjoy the ride.
0: Any advice to people? Then the whole point of this show is like, why do something big? And not everybody needs to do something as wild as bike from Alaska to Mexico, which, by the way, we're interviewing someone who paddled on a paddleboard from Alaska to Mexico. Um, oh, how cool is that yeah they're twins they did it together but you know I think yeah. this solo adventuring is also really interesting it doesn't have to be that wild it can be just a one day backpacking trip or one day paddling down the Amazon River whatever it is you do just advice to people who want to do something a little extreme what can you say to them
1: don't stop yourself get on with it, it, it you can do more than you think get on with it and just say yes you, you you don't know what you'll learn, but you'll learn a ton. And you can't uncouple that from everything else you do in your life, personally and professionally, that becomes part of your fabric. And the more of that kind of stuff that you do, it it develops your attitude that anything is possible. Not so much that I know how to do it, but I can figure it out. Mm, love it. And you can figure out anything if you're stimulated and motivated to do it. And then just draw on your strengths and let the weaknesses, you know, ignore them. That's what I did.
0: Julie Hotz is a filmmaker, photographer, and a creative from Dallas, Texas. After attending graduate school, Julie moved back home to save Bunny and to figure out her next move. She heard about the Pacific Crest Trail from a friend and made an offhand comment about wanting to do it someday. Not long after, a couple of friends invited her along their Pacific Crest Trail hike, and she jumped at the chance to join in. Little did she know what an impact those five months would have on her life. So what did you set out to do that was one of the biggest things you've done in your life?
2: I began hiking the Pacific Crest Trail in 2010. It was my first backpacking trip. I'd never been backpacking and hardly ever been hiking before, but when I had first heard of the Pacific Crest Trail by means of a friend, it sounded like an adventure, and it's a very privileged thing to do, but I also had this feeling deep inside me that if I did something like that, it would really make me grow up and teach me lessons that I might not be able to learn in comfort. Well, how old were you? So you were like 27, 28-ish? I was 26 when I started. 26. And and for clarification, I, I was very slow and I was on a major learning curve. I was not an athlete before this at all. So I did end up splitting hiking it into two different seasons. So I hiked three-fifths of it in 2010 and I hiked my additional missing chunk in 2013.
0: Wow, that's so interesting.
2: And so where did the Pacific Crest Trail idea come into play? One of my friends, when he graduated from grad school... He was going out to Los Angeles and he called me along the drive and he happened to mention, oh, hey, I just intersected with the Pacific Crest Trail in the desert of California. And I was like, what's the Pacific Crest Trail? <laughs> and then he p- proceeded to tell me, oh, it's this trail that goes from Mexico to Canada. And like you go through these stretches in the desert where there's no water and you have to hide water for yourself. And he made it sound sounds crazy and amazing and extreme. And I just, in my head, thought, I want to do that one day. And a few months later, I was at two of my friends' house. Uh, They had both hiked the Appalachian Trail a couple seasons prior, and they were showing me their photographs uh, because we were all photographers. And just, like, off the cuff, I said, Oh, I think I might like to hike the Pacific Crest Trail one day. (laughs) And... Then a couple of months after that, one of them sent me a message on Facebook that was like, hey, remember when you said you wanted to hike the Pacific Crest Trail? Well, I think I'm going to do it. Do you want to come? And awesome. And they had backpacking experience. And, you know, what a privilege to be able to have that resource because I knew nothing about anything when it came to that. And I just thought, if I don't do this right now, I won't do it again. I'm going to move somewhere and start my career. And, like, this is the moment where I should do it or not do it. So I saved up for a year. And I started to prep, you know, buying gear. I would scour websites for sales for almost every item I was trying to buy. And I love researching. But the thing is, because this is such a physical thing, and I would never done such a physical outdoor thing, like, I was not an outdoors person. I was just guessing at a lot of things and, you know, ended up buying some things I didn't need and had a very heavy backpack to start with. Um, and I dehydrated uh, all my meals and I just, I really went all out on the prep.
0: You dehydrated all your meals? So you like went out and got like veggies and dehydrated all of
2: them? And beans yeah, or whatever. I've actually done that for every one of my long distance hikes. That's impressive. I mean, I do get mac and cheese too cuz I love that, but I have some dietary restrictions so and I love my favorite meals and you can't always find my favorite meals.
0: So before, what were you doing? Were you were you a filmmaker? You're just out of grad school?
2: So I quite literally was a um, weighted tables at a restaurant and it was a restaurant that was flexible enough with my schedule that when I would get film gigs, they would let me take off for that. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, but I was not the only way I was able to save up this money was to live at home with my parents. And I would like to be fully transparent about that because it can be really hard sometimes if you're trying to like set yourself up for an adventure and you're like, how do people save up for this? And so... I am, you know, I was very fortunate to be in that situation. And then there were other things I was cutting corners around. I was just trying to live super minimally.
0: Mm. So what was it like when you finally hit the Pacific Crest Trail that first night?
2: Well, the morning that we were driving out to the trail, I was nauseous all morning and (laughs) had that feeling of what the hell am I getting myself into? And we hiked, I think, seven miles in the first day. And I remember after two miles, I had a little pee break and... That was the first time I'd ever peed in the woods, like not in an outhouse. And I remember thinking, getting up and being like, okay, 2,650 divided by two. That's, you know, 1,325. Okay, I only have to do this 1,325 more times. And from the beginning, because my body was adjusting, it was so painful. And my whole body was in pain for the first several months. Wow. How long did it take you to do that first stretch? So it took me, and I did have a couple breaks in there. Like I stopped for a week to work at a goat farm uh, to let snow melt. Um, I did a few things on the way. So it took me about four and a half, five months. Wow. Which sounds like an extremely long time because a lot of people do hike the whole trail in that time. But I was doing what I could do. So what
0: happened on the adventure that you just didn't expect?
2: Some of the biggest things that I didn't expect were 500 miles in, I decided to stop hiking with the group I had started hiking with. They had different paces than I did. They were much more experienced. There was no, like, animosity or anything. It was just I wanted to wait for more snow to melt in the Sierras, and I was just trying to slow down a little bit. And so I started hiking with another group of people. And then after hiking with them going into the Sierras, I realized that also their pace was way faster than mine. And I was just killing myself to keep up. I remember there was one morning I woke up and I cried before even sitting up. And I was so blistered and sad. And I just felt like, okay, I knew there were going to be challenges coming out here. But I am not trying to have a summer of 100% pure misery. Like, I want to be able to get something more than misery out of this. And that day I decided to get off the trail. And most of my life I had, like, I knew going into the PCT that there would be challenges and discomfort, and that's exactly why I was hiking it. But I had also never really failed In things I had set out to do, I am a pretty determined person. But most of that had been, like, academically in a totally different setting. So to feel like I utterly failed just felt terrible. But I got off the trail, and I went into a town, and I met some other hikers. And another hiker encouraged me. He's like, don't worry about the pace that everyone else is hiking. Hike your own hike. You can do whatever you want this summer. And I remember my mother telling me, like, you said you wanted to have an adventure. And you've already had an adventure. And I know whatever you do with the rest of your summer is going to be an adventure. And so I decided I didn't have enough snow experience. I had hardly ever been in snow in my life except for, like, a snow pile in a gas station in Utah. And snow I had uh, walked over in Southern California on the PCT just a few weeks prior. And so I decided to skip north. And I promised myself that I would come back and hike whatever miles I skipped someday in the future. And I got back on and hiked at my own pace. And that is when, you know, I realized that sometimes failure is the best thing. Like it can be something that really tears you down or it can be a gift. Failure
0: is so hard, and it's something we don't talk about enough, and I've been trying to bring this up as much as I can on the podcast. I mean, it's brutal. So what was the timeline of when you got off and got back on?
2: So I got off at mile 751. I actually have it tattooed on my arm because it was such a poignant mm. place, and I, it took me... My dad had actually been planning on coming out and doing a short section with me. So when I got off, I kind of noodled around in the area, and then we went and hiked a small portion in Yosemite. And then he dropped me off in Tahoe, and I did a 75-mile section around Tahoe, which I, I got to get some more snow experience and navigating in snow experience. And um, then I went north to Crater Lake. So to get from the actual point that I got off and got back on at Crater Lake, it was probably about three weeks.
0: But it sounds like you were still like doing stuff and hiking and hanging
2: out in the towns, and it wasn't like you flew home. No, not at all. No, I was yeah, definitely on the west coast all all that season. And then you went back
0: and you did it again.
2: When was this? So I finished my missing chunk in two thousand thirteen which was uh, from just south of Mount Whitney to Crater Lake. So how much longer was that after your first attempt? There was a gap of about three years because once I finished hiking in 2010, I decided to move out to Los Angeles. In fact, like one of the gifts that being on the trail gave me was less fear Uh of Uh, Everything people tell you to be afraid about in society, like, oh, you have to have enough money to move. I moved to Los Angeles with $100 because hiking on the trail reminded me I will be okay. Mm. If I need to sleep in my car, I will be okay. So I moved to L.A., and in 2011, I uh, didn't have enough money to take off, you know, that time off to finish the trail. And in 2012, I worked too much. And I was still in a place in my life where I didn't know how to say no. So in two thousand and thirteen, my like New year's resolution was learn to say no. And then I found out that Reese Witherspoon had bought the rights to the wild. yeah, and i I knew that the trail would get busier. and i i I think everybody who wants to do a long distance hike should be able to do it. So I was excited that more people would probably be getting on the trail. But I also was like, oh, it will probably be quieter if you go this year. Mm. So I said no to people, and I took the time to finish it that year. Awesome. But there's always, you know, there's new challenges and different things that happened. I realized by going back and doing it that, because if I had done it all in 2010, I don't know that I would have taken the time to do another long-distance kind of hike. And I realized by doing it that second time that this was something I wanted to keep bringing back in my life to find challenges and to tackle things.
0: When you finished hiking the PCT that first year, I mean, I'm guessing that was probably one of the most profound experiences of your life because it was the first time. What did you take away from it?
2: When people would ask me, oh, how was your hike? I'd be like, how can you expect me to sum up this whole thing that just shifted my paradigm, all the priorities in my life into a little sentence. And I finally came up with, it is the best thing I've ever done and the hardest thing I've ever done.
0: Talk to me about this. How did your priorities shift? Like what happened? What changed in you? Obviously, you developed a different relationship with failure. That's huge.
2: I think also I'm somebody who lives in my head a lot. And I was not, you know, I hadn't been in sports before. And it was the first time that I really had to become like so much happened in my body. And I, or I have a problem living in the past and the future more than the present. And being so in your body in these places where you have to be observant really allowed me to be in the present more. And there was so much time and space to ask questions and to sit with myself. Like, I think I had pushed questions away that I've been trying to ask and filled my life with busyness previous to that. And here, yes, I was busy with walking miles, but again, there was all that space to ask questions and really start to learn who I was, and when you're outside, I think a couple of things happen when you do something that's long-term. And one is, I think something in your brain gets rewired by the fact that every single day I, I was walking on the trail and then I could look over my shoulder at the end of the day and be like, wow, I came from there. And when you do that day after day after day after day, It becomes so obvious and so tangible that you can do more than you think you can and that you can go over mountains, not just on the outside and outside, but that you can go over mountains on the inside. And that is something that you can take into every day of your life. And when you are struggling at home, when you're working through depression, when you feel like you're in a hole, you're like, I know how to walk over mountains I know how to walk long distances. And also, from just like a really practical standpoint, it's nice to have your only worries be food, shelter, warmth, maybe some occasional human interaction. And like I had culture shock when I got off the trail. And that culture shock was wow, there's all these problems we create for ourselves and so many things that were not important on the trail that suddenly everybody thinks are important in society. And so it really helped me figure out what my priorities are.
0: Yeah. I mean, you hit on so many beautiful points and I so appreciate you sharing your story. One is busyness. It's a theme that we've talked about a lot this year. It's one of these accepted addictions in our society. And the other thing is, is you kind of, there's this thing called, I've been really interested in lately decision fatigue. We have to make so many decisions on a daily in what I would say off the trail. (laughs) When I'm out in the wild, I feel like it's so much easier to make decisions. They might be more critical, but there's just less distractions and I can focus and I just feel better in my busy mind. And it sounds like that happened to you a lot, especially magnified day in, day in, day out. And then the last thing is like, You proved yourself that you were a badass every single day, whatever that meant to you. And that's powerful. That's confidence. And I imagine you were able to take that into the world just tenfold.
2: Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's times where it's been a long time since I've been in the woods. And so sometimes those lessons get a little bit quieter and why I still struggle with self-esteem. But then I can go back to that place and I can... You know just have to wake up in the morning and tell myself okay you did learn these things you know you can do it you just have to remind yourself every single day
0: any advice to people who want to do something wild a little extreme and that definition obviously is individual but advice Mm -hmm. you can give to people
2: yeah um you know, because I now I'm at a point in my life where I do struggle, like, would I do another long-distance hike? Because now I struggle with, oh, is that selfish for me to take all this time and do this thing just for me? But I became a better person who can communicate more effectively, who can sit in pain and discomfort easier, who can walk with other people through pain. And I would say... You know, if you're a caretaker to someone, it might be impossible for you to leave right now. But I would say do it sooner or later because the person that you might become by doing this, you want that person to arrive as soon as possible. And also to the person who doesn't feel like a long-distance hike is for them. There's all other... I've done long-distance cycling or... Last year when I was in New York, I actually had to stay in the city a lot and it was a time of stillness and I did some workbooks that I wouldn't have had time to do otherwise and it was like a long-distance hike through the Interscape Mm. and I think that that is just as important and so whatever your challenge is, whatever your through hike is, you know, it can be a physical extreme adventure in the outdoors or it can be an extreme digging into yourself. It's life-changing. It sounds so cheesy, and I was so hesitant to tell people when I got back from the trail, like, oh, it changed my life. But it did. When we come
0: back, hear about one more adventurer who, along with his twin brother, made his way south through the waters off the West Coast from Alaska to Mexico on a paddleboard. Summer is the best time to get out and try something new or different. For me, I enjoy being near the water or in the mountains. Did you know that REI offers classes and guided trips all over the country? From paddling to climbing, hiking, and campouts, there's something for everyone. What better way to spend a weekend than rock climbing in Colorado at sunset or taking a moonlight hike in the Smoky Mountains or even going stand-up paddling on a camping trip in San Diego? REI will provide the guides and connect you with the gear you need to create an epic summer moment. Experience more with REI and register at rei.com forward slash events. At age 22, Ryan Higginbotham and his twin brother Casey decided to do something wild, something that would really push themselves. They had backgrounds in endurance sports, they'd done the Ironman, plenty of all day adventure races, and they'd go for five mile swims or even run a marathon just for fun. Inspired by their father and grandfather, great athletes themselves, Ryan and Casey wanted to do something that would push their limits and test their abilities even more. So one night over a couple of beers, they decided that adventure would be to paddle from Alaska to Mexico on paddle boards carrying all of their food and equipment themselves. So tell us a little bit about kind of what you do and why you have this desire to paddle from Alaska to Mexico on a paddleboard.
3: Casey and I, my, my brother I did it with, we were both graduating college at the time. And we both felt like we'd never been tested to the extent that I wanted to and nor I think he was feeling the same way. You know, we all like growing up, we always set bars for each other, doing different endurance races and whatnot, and then decided to test ourselves beyond what we knew we could do. So in college, did you guys go to
0: college in San Luis Obispo?
3: I did. Uh, Casey jumped around quite a bit, and then he spent the last year at San Luis Obispo.
0: So you guys are twins? Yeah. Okay. How old were you when you had this wild idea?
3: uh, 22.
0: 22. So you didn't have a job. You graduated college. Maybe you had some money. Not,
3: Not a lot of money, but we basically sold all of our stuff. He and I both, to save up, moved back in with our parents for a brief period of time. And thankfully, they let us live there and not pay rent for that. I think it was like 10 months.
0: What were you doing before? You know, you graduated college, but you obviously had a little background in endurance sports.
3: Yeah, we were both lifeguarding and had background in endurance sports, doing anything from Ironman to all-day adventure races and things of that sort. So
0: tell me a little bit about how you got the idea to paddle from Alaska to Mexico. Like, where did that come from?
3: Oh, I mean, it was a culmination of things. I think like coming to the end of school and not knowing what either of us wanted to do with our lives, uh, I felt like I was in a weird spot and I really wanted to push myself and test myself and Casey and I started throwing ideas around and Basically for a big adventure, a big adventure. We didn't know we could complete something that would, we would learn as much as possible. And he wanted to take horses across Mongolia and we didn't (laughs) know anything about horses. It was a bad idea, really bad idea. And uh, then I think I said, let's do California on rescue boards, lifeguard rescue boards. And then it just progressed from there. Like, all right, let's go to Alaska. Let's do paddle boards, no support, just dry bags with our gear. And I, I think we settled on it. We were having a couple beers one night and that's how we got into it. And so all great <laughs> ideas
0: happen, right? Over a little exactly. couple of cocktails with your twin brother
3: yeah, and each exactly. other on
0: a lot of people come up with a lot of ideas. How did you turn that? Like, I wonder if to then like actually getting on the paddleboard and going.
3: Yeah, it was a long process. I mean, it didn't really seem real. It seemed real once we got the paddleboards and then it was like, oh, wow. OK, like we're we're invested in this. We just put money into the boards And we're doing it. But I mean, it was a long process. It's, you know, training. We planned every single night where we camped. Every site based on a water source and whether there were hazards. It's
0: kind of similar to people who hike the PCT or like uh, we just interviewed a guy who biked from Alaska to Mexico as well. So from the day you had that idea at the bar to the day you guys got to Alaska, what was that time frame like?
3: That was about one year. We came up with the idea in March of two thousand fifteen and then left in March of two thousand
0: sixteen. You were saying you just felt like you wanted to be tested. What do you mean by that like had just had things just been too easy for you? I mean you got a good looking kids, your lifeguards you went to school
3: yeah, I think you know we had like I had a great family great upbringing it was it was awesome I uh, went to a great school and my you know when i look at like the stories my dad would tell us about he grew up he was in vietnam and different things he's done there's just this level of toughness that i think casey and i were probably trying to push towards you know doing different competitive events but it it just never matched up in my mind and i think personally there's i don't know what it is is this feeling of lack of fulfillment you know if i'm doing something that i know i can complete So I think part of it goes back to my dad. Part of it goes to the stories he told us about his dad and the stuff he did. And I think we both wanted to, you know, live up to the gene pool in a way.
0: Twins are so interesting because they push each other to a level like no other.
3: For sure. Are you guys fraternal or? Identical. Identical twins. And are you a lot alike? There are definitely a lot of similarities. There are a lot of differences as well.
0: So let's talk about the adventure how many days was it? When did you start? And I want to hear about those first initial days.
3: We started on March 18th, 2016. In total, it took us seven months and three days to get down to the border.
0: Seven yeah. months?
3: Yeah. Yeah, it was a Holy long time. Cow.
0: How did you get off? You, so you just took off work. You're like, hey, I don't know when I'll be back.
3: Yeah, I mean, we had we had everything we needed. We, had, we bought all the dehydrated food we were going to eat for what we thought was going to be four and a half months or so. We were you know, self-sustained. So we had everything we'd need to go out there and pull it off. And as a lifeguard, the schedule is pretty flexible. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm gone. I'm going to be out of here. So.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's good training to be a lifeguard. So you started in Alaska in March and you just started paddling.
3: Yeah, it was great. I mean, so one thing that we forgot to do training was we never paddled with weight on the boards more than a water bottle. Which was
0: you never paddled with your camping gear on the board?
3: (laughs) Not until day one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was a bad idea.
0: So tell me a little bit about what you learned, what happened.
3: Yeah. So we get up to we a friend drops us off in Prince Rupert, BC. We take a ferry up to Ketchikan, Alaska. It took us about four hours. I think the ferry ride was four hours. What it took us to take, you know, it took ten days to to get there paddling. So we get up there on. I think five, five days before we left, it's a terrible storm. We get off the ferry and we're just holding our board so they don't blow away in the wind. It's nighttime, it's raining, and we're just like, all right, now we're in Alaska and this is what it's going to be like. <laughs> so we waited it out, uh, got our weather window day after St. Paddy's Day and paddled off, and all I was thinking going away from the dock was basically I didn't want to tip over my board because we had a couple people that came out to watch us and just look like an idiot. Because putting 70 pounds of gear on the board without having put weight on before was just sucked. (laughs) So you didn't tip it over? Oh, we tipped plenty of times. But I got, I think, a couple miles out before I tipped the first time. Thankfully. Yeah.
0: So everything's in a dry bag, though. I mean, this is totally different than the PCT because you're in
3: water. Yeah. Super dynamic.
0: Okay. So like, how did you do it?
3: (laughs) Well, we packed, I mean, pack everything in the dry bags. So we mounted these plastic racks on the, the front and the back of the boards. So they were off about an inch. So when waves hit and water it could pass underneath the bags, wouldn't tip us over as much. We did that. We had a ton of gear on. We carried, we carried a shotgun with slugs because we were scared of bears. So that was a lot of weight. I had a camera on me, just like the PCT guys and gals do. We ship uh, our food about every 200 miles, 250 miles down the mm. coast. And there'd be a small outpost even in BC that you could go to and they held the packages for us. So, but it also had this like sense of accountability then, you know, if you don't get to your food drop in time or something happens, you're going to be hungry.
0: Wow. So how did, how did you get to the actual food? I mean, you land on the beach, so it's a little different. And then to get, to get from the beach to these outposts, what would you do? Walk, hitchhike?
3: Yeah, I mean, exactly. Some of the places. Yeah. So the, the earlier ones, you know, we get to a spot, like our first food drop it's a small, it's like a decent, I guess a decent sized town, uh, Prince Rupert, British Columbia. And we could just walk, walk from there to the post office. The next place was on Denny Island, a place called Shearwater. And there's like 75 people that live there. So that was like, pull up to the dock, put our boards there. No one's going to touch them. Walk over to the only post office in town, pick him up. But we did hitchhike a couple of times, hitchhiked, got rides from people. Yeah.
0: That's crazy. And and so what sort of food did you eat? The same kind of food that hikers eat and bikers eat? Or it was different?
3: Yeah, uh, dehydrated food, the same brand, same stuff. It got really old.
0: And was there a couple of things that you had that you
3: are really glad you had? Like types of stove? Like did you use a jet boil? What did you use? MSR makes this little uh, jet boil. And that's what we used with a decent sized pot. That was super light. And we could store other gear inside the pot while paddling. I mean, gear wise... Nothing beats at something that's really waterproof. And I found out that nothing's really waterproof, except this watch I have that my dad gave me that survived the whole way down. Everything else died that was outside of the bags.
0: Okay, so just three, like, highlight scary moments of of the trip. Just moments where you're like, are are you kidding me? Why are we doing this? What tested you?
3: Well, I lost a wetsuit glove on day five in Alaska. And the weather was really nice up to that point.
0: And so how cold is it in Alaska?
3: Uh. 42 degree water, the air would be like uh, mid thirties and then sometimes get up into the fifties, depending on what it was like. It wasn't freezing, but when the weather hit and the wind comes down, then it got pretty cold.
0: Yeah. And you're in the water all day. I mean, getting chances of hypothermia are pretty high without wetsuit gloves.
3: Yeah. And we, we didn't use, we should have used thicker wetsuits. Uh, We used the four mils with wool on the inside and those were great. Six and a half mil gloves, six and a half mil booties. But yeah, I lost the glove. So that, that was kind of like, okay, I'm the only person that can get myself out of the situation. I put a booty on my hand and a wool sock on my foot and just paddled like that for the day. And then we found a, this random building in the middle of nowhere with a couple electricians that were there and some caretakers. And they were the electricians were getting picked up by a float plane the next day and they flew in a pair of gloves for me.
0: That's interesting, though, because people talk about trail angels, but it sounds like there was like water angels.
3: <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. I've totally heard that. And then right after that, we had to go across this spot called the Portland Inlet. It basically separates Alaska and Canada. And a bunch of people told us that's like, you're going to die at the Portland Inlet. Fishermen told us, uh, this one guy specifically up in Ketchikan, he asked me if I'd seen the perfect storm. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen it. And he goes, yeah, that was nothing, man. Like. You should see the Portland inlet when it blows up. And I'm like, all right, great. Looking forward to going across on a paddle board. <laughs> so that was uh that was interesting. We got there and we got across right before the tide switched. Or but the tide had switched, but the current switches later because they're like 20 plus foot tides up there. And we got through and we looked back about 15 minutes later and the whole thing just blown up. The current switched and it entered, you know, collided with the wind, collided with the waves coming into the inlet.
0: So what does that mean? That means like if you were to try to have paddled like 15 minutes later, it would have been like paddling against a treadmill
3: going the other way? Oh, it would way. have been like, we would have got sucked out to sea in the current and then just like insane chop and wind. It would have been terrible.
0: I can only imagine. I was trying to paddle across a channel when a Navy ship was coming on a stand up paddle board and a guy just came up to me and he's like, you need to just grab onto my rope right now. That submarine is going to be right where you are in three minutes and you're not going anywhere. And I was oh. terrified <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay, cool. Thanks. I was just dumb and like 20 and I yeah. stand up paddleboard. And this was just like San Diego Harbor, but it was just a weird day. And all of a sudden the wind switched and I just, I wasn't going anywhere. It was awful. So I imagine that happened a lot to an extreme case and, yeah. and waves, like how big were the waves?
3: The waves, I mean, so in the beginning, we took the inside passage from Alaska down. That spot was exposed up in the Dixon entrance, but we took the inside passage. So we may, we mostly had to worry about currents, whirlpools, um, crazy currents in there. I mean, like you get 16 knot currents in certain spots. Um, the waves were basically, so we didn't have any issues with waves until we got to Washington. And then it was like south winds every day. The first swell hit. And everywhere from like head high to when I broke my board in Cape Mendocino and the waves were like 10 foot faces and we're trying to land through it. And that was a bad idea.
0: Yeah. So for people listening who don't know about pro and paddle boarding, these boards aren't really like surfboards. They're thicker. They're, they're not the easiest to, to just take in to the
3: beach. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're not made to go through the surf. I mean, and so Joe Bark shaped them and he's an insane I and mean, he's an amazing shaper and he shaped them specifically for this. They were thicker. They had thicker glassing. They were like, I mean, everything that he could think of to make them better fit for this journey he did. But you just can't take those things with a ton of weight on them through 10 foot surf. So test one was losing
0: your glove. What was the second one?
3: Just going across the Portland Inlet for sure. I mean, it's a three mile crossing but it just scared the hell out of us. And then just getting into Prince Rupert we ran out of our food uh, the last day. The uh, tide started pushing against us and we landed about a mile short of town on this little island in the storm. You could barely see town through the storm. Landed, woke up the next day and paddled across into town. So that sucked. But it was, you know, we're near town. So it's like, all right, we're going to get food tomorrow. if <laughs> As long as the weather gets better. You were just hungry. Yeah, just hungry. Just hungry and beat up. It was the first, that was the first really tough paddle for us. And it was kind of like, all right, this is what it took to get to food drop number one. And you just have to think like, all right, you have to compartmentalize those because otherwise it would have just seemed crazy that we've got to do that for 2,000 more miles.
0: How many miles would you paddle between each stop a day?
3: In each day, we'd do about 20. Holy cow. Probably between like... Yeah, I'd say 15, 15 to 20 miles a day, and most of them were about 20. In Canada, we had a day where we covered like three miles because we were trying to cross the uh, Queen Charlotte Strait, and the weather was just terrible, so we kept working our way inside.
0: And then the camping was fun, exciting, all of it.
3: <laughs> the longest camping trip I had done before that was like three days. So I wasn't really a hard camper at the time. It's <laughs> so, yeah, the camping was interesting. I mean, it was at first, we were just scared of bears. That was it. And we had to f- start figuring out the routine of like, all right, you take care of this job. I'll take care of this so we can use our time wisely, get the food prepped, everything you have to do, set up camp, find a good campsite, food, water, security with our bear situation. <laughs> so
0: what, what was the deal with the bears? Did you see any? I mean, The guy I, I interviewed who biked from Alaska, he
3: saw tons. We saw no brown bears. We saw one black bear. The first one, well, actually we saw a few black bears, but the first one was, uh, the first night on Vancouver Island, but no brown bears. We, when we hit shore, we were really loud. We were just like everything, you sing songs or just yell into the forest, whatever you're going to do. Cause they you're like, all right, they don't want to be around us. So we're going to keep them away. And then I would just spoon the shotgun every night, scared of the bears, but we never saw any. And every, everybody would say, oh yeah, they're going to come down and eat the skunk cabbage this time of year to clear their digestive tract and they're going to get really hungry and you guys are going to be right there on the beach. So we got to our heads a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's so mean of people. Well, I mean, maybe they were trying to help (laughs) you or maybe they were trying to scare you. I don't know. Uh, Who knows? What was it like being with your brother for that long in that intimate of a setting and just testing each other and yourselves every day?
3: You get pretty sick of talking to one guy, you know, for that long, for sure. (laughs) But definitely when it was tough or the things that were more daunting, it brings you together as a team for sure. I mean, we definitely work better together as a team after that experience versus before. And I could tell from the beginning when I lost the glove and it was like a dumb, calm situation. And that happens. And then we weren't a good team at the time. And then problems would happen in California. And it was like, no worries. No problem.
0: Did he just totally call you a dumbass
3: when he lost it? Was he, he was mad? pissed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he He thought I just ruined the whole thing. He was pissed. <laughs> he led Indio. I I know. And that's didn't. what you do to your sibling, though. Oh, yeah. And we're used to it. I mean, that's how we motivate each other in general. You know, like you're an idiot.
0: That is funny. When you guys finished, it had been seven months. Like, What was
3: finishing like? It was not this like grand thing you'd imagine. I mean, there are a few friends and family members on the beach. It was kind of anticlimactic. We we're just like, we did it, you know, and I had this feeling like I was looking down the coast. And every single day, you know, every single paddle for the past half year, I'd found out what was around the next corner and what's around the next point, what's the next challenges, who's gonna be around the corner, what that next day's gonna be like, the next adventure. And then it was all of a sudden it was over. And I was looking down the coast, like, man, if there was nobody here waiting for us to come in, we'd probably just keep just keep going. Wow. It was definitely fulfilling. I mean, anytime you set out to accomplish something you don't know if you can do. I mean, once once we got around Into Southern California, we knew we had it. But you just, there's always a possibility of something happening. So once you accomplish that goal, it's pretty exciting. And then you you just kind of have to come up with new goals. So what did you do afterwards? Afterwards, basically the goal was like, all right, we're going to make this movie. We're going to work together with Kellen and make it happen. So started doing that. I took up a job doing commercial fishing in Alaska to get my adventure fix. It was an interesting Kind of an interesting time period. And then we're like, all right, let's go do another one. And then we paddled down Baja Peninsula.
0: You just said that really casually. So like just recently you paddled down the Baja Peninsula?
3: Yeah. So we started in October of last year and finished in January of this year. Nice.
0: The weather's not exactly perfect, is it?
3: It's not. It's not the Mexico, I think, that most people imagine. It's a little cooler for sure. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fog. We got a few, you know, a few rainstorms that came through.
0: How did you do the food drops? It's not like there's like USPS.
3: Yeah, we called people. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's more complicated there. So a couple of them we buried in the ground ahead of time. We drove down, buried them at a few sites, and then knew when we'd get there a few months later, we'd pick them up. And so that was cool. Wow. Um, and they were there. Yeah. Every single one of they them. They were there. Every single one of them. They were there. How did you
0: remember where they were?
3: Uh, you know, just do a little marker in a certain spot, set up rocks in a certain manner, and you know where to find it.
0: Amazing. So what happened that you just didn't expect?
3: What stands out, actually, I didn't expect people to be so helpful. Mm. I mean, it, it really restores, restored like my hope and people just help you. We would hit a beach, people would give us food. They'd put a roof over our heads for the night. I mean, we got taken in by so many people and given rides to places, everything. It was insane. People, total strangers. They're uh, like, Hey, what are you guys doing? And how can we help? What do you need?
0: That's really cool. What was the most fun, exciting, kind of memorable times on the trip?
3: Any of the nice day. I mean, the the bad days and the nice days. We had a day right before Vancouver Island and it was just, We woke up to a terrible storm. Everything was wet and it just sucked. And we just started laughing about it because it was so, (laughs) so terrible. It was like, (laughs) whenever are you on an island with your brother and the weather's terrible and you don't, you know, you're running out of food, you got to get to this next stop and it's just raining down on you. It's just a shitty situation. So what else are you going to do? You're just going to laugh.
0: Now that it's been a couple of years, what are some of the key takeaways and, and how did this trip change
3: you? Key takeaways for me would be approaching everything with a complete open mind. And you don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know what your day is going to be like. You don't know what you're going to do. Things don't always go according to plan. So I think I just kind of learned to learn again and absorb everything and have no expectations and take things as they come. I'm a much better teammate. I learned learning to work with somebody else who you've clashed with seriously in the past, you know. (laughs) And working together to get through, you know, every day's little micro goal towards a larger goal. That was a big one. I mean, work, it's like, it's a small team, two people.
0: And and your family member, but it must've been kind of nice. I mean, could you imagine doing this solo?
3: That would suck. No. (laughs) How did this trip change you? I mean, it completely changed my perspective on things. You learn to care about the things that I would say are important in life. I mean, at the very base of that would be, okay, if I'm, warm and dry, and I've got some food. I'm good to go. And that feeling doesn't last, you know, like that, that would make me, I'd be a 10 out of 10 on the happy scale. Right. When I got back from that trip, if I was warm, I was dry and I had a full stomach, but you get back into living your everyday life. And that changes a little bit. But I think the thing that doesn't change is realizing what's important in terms of like your family and, you know, the people you have around you.
0: Any advice to people who want to do a long distance paddle?
3: Yeah, train up, uh, prepare as well as you can and uh, go for it.
0: So this sounds like you've had like not one, but two adventures of a lifetime. Why should people go out and just do something extreme?
3: I think that anytime you get out of your comfort zone, you're going to learn a lot. And if anybody was thinking about going and doing something like that, that's what I would tell them. I'd say, you know, attack it with an open mind. know absorb everything as you go and go for it that was the advice i got to approach everything with an open mind and be open to new ideas you know listen to people listen what they're saying about you know the locals in certain areas listen to your surroundings absorb it all and i think when you're committed to a a goal that's going to be difficult You just have to adapt to each day as it comes.
0: The great thing about going on an adventure is that something unexpected always happens. And whether it's good or bad, you're bound to learn a lesson or two that you can bring back to your normal life. According to these three guests, you can do more than you think you can if you just go into it with an open mind. One thing that Julie said that really stuck with me since our conversation, The person you're going to become on this journey, you want them around sooner rather than later. So go. The time is now. To follow along on the adventures of today's guests, you can check out downhillsdon'tcomefree.com, juliehots.com, that's julie, J U L I E H O T Z.com. And you can check out Ryan and Casey's adventure, and they're doing another adventure right now, so you should check them out at buyhandproject.com. You can also follow Julie on Instagram at Julie A. hots and Ryan at buyhandproject. This podcast is produced by REI with the help from Annie Fassler and Chelsea Davis. Thank you so much to Jerry, to Julie, and to Ryan for coming on this show. It was inspiring to hear all of your stories and I appreciate you sharing them with me. To all the listeners who write me daily about your own adventures, thank you. I love hearing about them. Tune in week after next to hear from a talented writer about the power of water in her life. Also about the power of lying fallow. As always, we appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. Some of you have been writing incredibly thoughtful reviews. I really appreciate them. And I also appreciate your hilarious review names. Gringo Burns, Biking Billy Bob, Show Me the Trail. They're awesome. I appreciate it. And if you can take the two minutes to write a review, if you haven't, please do so and share this podcast with a friend. Remember, wherever you are, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest idea.